Um, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5, we're going to look at Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9. Big portion of Scripture, basically a whole chapter, 5, 8 through 6, 9, 5, 8 through 6, 9. Uh, And if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can look it up on your phone. Just Google Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9, and that uh, will get you to some sort of Bible website that you can read the passage on. Or there are paperback Bibles on this table back here. You can go grab one of those. You can turn to page 320, and that'll get you to Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9. Um, Well, let's dig into God's Word this morning. Let's take a moment to pray before we do. Heavenly Father, we are here to hear from you this morning and not from me. So would you help me to get out of the way? And would you speak? Would you make the reading and proclamation of your word effectual for the salvation and the sanctification of your people, and for the glory of your name. Would you let the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, be acceptable in your sight? O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, John D. Rockefeller is widely regarded as one of the wealthiest men in American history, At one point in time, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, he controlled 90% of our nation's oil, 90%. He became America's first billionaire, and by himself, he he owned a fortune of worth 2% of our nation's economy. His net worth uh, is estimated to be the equivalent uh, today of, of 400 and $18 billion. And now he was once asked, how much money is enough? And to this he replied, just a little more. Just a little more. Well, of course, none of us have accumulated the the level of wealth that Rockefeller had, if you ever do. But the reality is that I, I suspect, I imagine that if any of us in this room were asked that question, how much money is enough? How much money is enough? Probably most of us would give a similar answer, just a little more. I need just a little more than I have right now. Charles, Bridge, Char- Charles Bridges, he, he once said that um, poor people are in as much danger of an inordinate desire toward the wealth of the world as the rich are from an inordinate delight in it. And that's true. So we would do well to ask the question, would more money really be enough? Would just a little more money really be enough? Would it really solve the problems we think we have? Would it really satisfy us? Well, the preacher answers that question for us this morning with a convincing no, and then he exhorts and advises us to be content with that which we do have. And so we're going to look together at Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9, if you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy, for this is the word of our God.
If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are higher yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wondering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Well, the sort of uh, summary and big idea of our text here is that since the, the greedy pursuit of wealth is futile... We ought to be content with what God has given us. Since the greedy pursuit of wealth is futile, it's vain, we ought to be content with what God has given us. And so look with me at the the dissatisfaction of wealth and the delight of contentment. The dissatisfaction of wealth and the delight of contentment. First, let's look at the dissatisfaction of wealth. Now, our our text this morning is structured in what's called a, a chiasm, Chiastic structure is somewhat common in, in Hebrew literature, if you want to throw that up there. Yeah. Uh, 
It's uh, where the sort of central message of the, the passage is found in the middle. The climax and central message of the, the passage is found in the middle. And this is a little bit different than kind of how we do in, in Western culture and in English. We typically kind of wait for the central message and the climax kind of at the end. Uh, but this is a little different. It, it's in the center. And so you can see here that A starts with those who cannot be satisfied, some reflections in Proverbs in 5, 8 through 12. And then there's B, those who have no delight uh, because they sought satisfaction in that which does not satisfy in 5, 13 to 17 with a story, an anecdote. And then there's the central message of the passage, what is good. There's the delight of contentment in 5, 18 through 20. And then those who have no delight, again, those, those who sought for satisfaction in what does not satisfy in 6, 1 through 6 is B, it's the anecdote and story again. And then back to A, those who cannot be satisfied in 6, 7 through 9 with some reflections and Proverbs. So that's what we're looking about this morning. And you can see here that the, the central message of our passage is, is abundantly clear that riches and wealth and possessions that we, we so often crave and desire, that's what, that which we so often delusionally believe will satisfy us, they simply don't satisfy. The preacher says in verse 10, Chapter 5, that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. It doesn't satisfy. Likewise, in verse 7 of chapter 6, he says that all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. It doesn't satisfy. And so because wealth does not satisfy, seeking satisfaction in it is foolish, it's, it's like drinking salt water, seawater, and expecting it to quench your thirst. And instead, what happens is you just become more and more thirsty. And you continue to need more and more to drink just to quench your thirst, but it keeps making you more and more thirsty. Just a little more will be enough, Rockefeller said. But it isn't. And it never will be. As David Foster Wallace once said, he said, if you worship money and things, if they're where, where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough. You will never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. And therefore, the preacher tells us the greedy pursuit of wealth is simply foolish. And let's be clear about that. The preacher is not saying that wealth is inherently bad or inherently sinful. Instead, he's, he's being very frank about its limitations and the, the slew of problems that often comes with it, and therefore then warning us against the greedy pursuit of wealth. It's a broken cistern, wealth and possessions. It's one that will inevitably disappoint and fail to satisfy if it's what you're looking to for satisfaction. I remember reading an interview with Brad Pitt from years ago in Rolling Stone. Of course, we know that Brad Pitt has it all, right? Right? He is a good-looking man. Uh, he has the success. He has the money, the possessions. Now he even has an Oscar. Congratulations, Brad. That's right. He listens to the podcast sometimes, so he'll hear me say that. Yeah. But in this interview, he seems to be kind of coming to terms with and expressing this fact in this interview that all of that is not actually satisfying him. It's not actually fulfilling him. Listen to what he says. He says, man... I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success. But if that's the case, 
Why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say toss all this. we got to find something else. Because all I know is at this point in time, we are heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being, and I don't want that. And so the interview says to him, he says, so if we're heading toward this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? He says, hey man, I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain. I'm sitting in it and I'm telling you that's not it. I'm the guy who has everything. I know, but I'm telling you, once you've got everything, then you're just left with yourself. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better, and you don't wake up any better because of it. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't give what it so often promises. It doesn't actually deliver the good life. It doesn't actually lead to human flourishing. And the preacher actually gives us a number of reasons why wealth and possessions don't satisfy us and why they they actually end up disappointing us in the end. And we're just going to kind of walk through these texts and see that instead of satisfaction and delight, the, the greedy pursuit of wealth and even the possession of great wealth itself leads us into a series of problems in life. So we see in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 5, the preacher shows that wealth often increases brutality. In society, it often increases our our brutality. We become mean-spirited people often. We become oppressive people often because of the greedy pursuit of wealth. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. You see, the preacher is saying that the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice, the the brutality of the powerful and elite is typically carried out because of greed and the pursuit of wealth. In those days, under monarchical governments, it was carried out by kings and, and royalty who enslaved the weak and vulnerable, and they did so in order to bring gain to the land that they oversaw. They were committed to these cultivated fields, he says, even if on the backs of the oppressed and poor. And things like this continue to this day, don't they? The companies that make big bucks from selling us our clothes and our electronics, they do so on the backs of those who are working for them in sweatshops, working long hours in hazardous conditions for next to nothing. Those companies that make big bucks, sold for a profit, the, the, fruit, the fruits and vegetables that we eat, sold for a profit, they do so on the backs of those who cultivate fields for next to nothing in hazardous conditions and farms across the world. And what's worse, the preacher says, get used to it. Don't be surprised by it. In a fallen world, it's to be expected. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, all because of the greed and insatiable longing for wealth amongst the powerful and elite. But please recognize this as a problem. The insatiable hunger for wealth is what leads to such brokenness and oppression. If there's one thing we've learned from Ecclesiastes so far, is that we ought to live in fear of the sovereign God because He will one day judge the world in righteousness. And those who committed such heinous and oppressive acts will be held accountable for their deeds. So watch out 
for the temptation of greed. Watch out for the insatiable longing for wealth. You might dig yourself into a pit which you'll never get out of. It increases often, it increases brutality. The next problem that shows the dissatisfaction of wealth in our text is, is that of responsibility. So increased wealth often means increased responsibility. You think wealth will satisfy. You think it will make you happy. You think that it will finally lead you into the good life. But then you just end up being responsible for so much more, and it leads to more complications in life. Look what he says in in verse 11 of chapter 5. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) So think about this. Imagine you win the lottery Okay, I know everyone dreams about that. And all of a sudden, you have several billion dollars at your disposal. I don't know how much the lottery is going for these days. I'm sure it's, let's say, several billion. What do you think will happen, though? You have several billion dollars. What do you think will happen? Well, all of a sudden, you buy more. Your bills increase. You have, all of a sudden, a lot, many people, supposed friends, coming to you and asking for loans, asking for help. You have to pay more taxes, and your taxes become more complicated, You buy more, and and so you'll have to pay more attention to the ongoing maintenance of of your recently acquired possessions, and and, and with the increased responsibility, you have to devote more and more time and more and more money to maintaining and stewarding what you now own. After all of that is said and done, will you really have all that much time left to enjoy what you now own? Or will you just be able to see it with your eyes, the, the preacher says? This is a problem that often comes with wealth. There's one more reason that it doesn't satisfy, it doesn't actually lead to the good life that's so often promised. Increased wealth means increased responsibility and allows for less time and less capacity to and actually enjoy the wealth. It doesn't satisfy. And not only that, not only does wealth increase responsibility, it can also increase anxiety. The preacher says in a proverb in verse 12, he says, sweet is the, is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the proverb's meaning is, is simple. It's about a laborer who doesn't have a lot, but he sleeps like a baby at night because he doesn't have a lot to worry about. When he goes home, at the end of the day, he can lay his work down, he can focus on what's in front of him. But the rich man because he has so much wealth, so much responsibility, so many possessions to maintain, because he has so much to lose, he stays up late worrying about it all. The more you have, the more you have to lose, and therefore the more you have to be anxious about. J.C. Ryle captured the sentiment well. He once said that money is in truth one of the most unsatisfying of possessions. It takes away some cares, no doubt, but it brings with it quite as many as it takes away. There's the trouble in the getting of it. There's anxiety in the keeping of it. There are temptations in the, use, the uses of it. There's guilt in the abuse of it. There is sorrow in the losing of it. There is perplexity in the disposing of it. Indeed, this is one of the problems with the accumulation of wealth and the greedy pursuit of wealth. It leads to increased anxiety. Along those same lines, there's also a great deal of uncertainty in wealth. It's a very uncertain thing. It's a very fickle thing. Preacher speaks of this in verses 5, 13 through 14, and 6, 1 and 2. Look at what he says there. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. 
Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, and he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And also in 6, 1 and 2, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God, is not, God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. You see, wealth may come, but it also very well may go. You can't rely upon it. The loss of wealth and possessions can happen at anywhere, at any time. It's very uncertain. It's a fickle thing. There's this wonderful little book called Counterfeit Gods. Tim Keller, he writes about litany of suicides that occurred after the global economic crisis of 2008. It's a sobering account of those who sought satisfaction in the uncertainties of wealth. It says, the, the acting chief financial officer, Freddie Mac, the Federal Home Mortgage, Loan Mortgage Corporation, hanged himself in his basement. The, the chief executive of Sheldon Good, a leading U.S. real estate auction firm, shot himself in the head behind the wheel of his Jaguar, his red Jaguar. A French money manager who invested the wealth of many of Europe's royal and leading families and who had lost $1.4 million of his clients' money in Bernard Madoff's Ponzi scheme slit his wrists and died in his Madison Avenue office. A Danish senior executive with HSBC Bank hanged himself in the wardrobe of his 500-pound-a-night suite in Knightsbridge, London. You see, riches can be lost in a bad business venture. They can be lost in a global economic crisis. They can be lost due to thieves, due to foolish decisions, due to unforeseen providences. They can be lost. They are uncertain. And so if you're looking to them for satisfaction, prepare to be unsatisfied. If you're looking to them to give you the good life, prepare to be let down. Wealth doesn't satisfy because of its uncertainty. And then the last problem here that shows the lack of satisfaction in wealth is, is that of its temporality. It's a very temporal thing. Look at verses 15 to 17 of chapter 5. As he came from his mother's womb, so shall he go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and in much vexation and sickness and anger. So you leave this world with nothing to your name. Just the same as you came. You, you may have wealth and possessions and money during the stint of your life, but it doesn't prevent death, and it will, la- it, it will matter little when death comes. I remember around this time a few years ago, reading in the news about a man in Sydney, New York, who won a million dollars in the lottery. And, you know, this is a quite remarkable thing to happen. It's a rarity. So right after he won, local media found him, they interviewed him. He, he, he told them, this is going to change our lives for the better, to tell you the truth. He told them he was going to put quite a bit away for retirement. He was going to buy a new truck. He was going to invest in the future. And he also used this newly found cash to go to the doctor, something he had apparently been neglecting to do. And it's there where they told him that he actually had stage four lung and brain cancer. And he died just a few short weeks later. 
Of course, the, the same fate awaits us all. Whether we die a few weeks from now, or in our beds in old age, how much money we have in the bank when we die, how cluttered our homes are with valuables, it will be of little importance. Your money will go to someone else, your possessions to the landfill, your body to the ground. Wealth is temporal, it's temporal, it's fleeting. You may have it while you live, but you're going to die, and what good will it do you then? My friends, wealth, money, possessions, the insatiable pursuit of them does not satisfy. It's a broken cistern. The greedy and ravenous pursuit of money for satisfaction is like drinking salt water and expecting it to quench your thirst. It will only leave you wanting more, and it will only make you all the more thirsty and less and less satisfied. And therefore, the preacher commends to us the delight of contentment. The delight of contentment. Look at verses 18 to 20 of chapter 5. The preacher writes, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toils which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now this may strike us as a bit odd at, at first glance, doesn't it? Now the preacher just showed how, how fickle and complicated life with wealth can be. So you might expect them to, to then urge you to take a vow of poverty, to give it all away, swear off money and possessions altogether. But he doesn't, he doesn't go that route. He doesn't go that route, does he? Instead, he seems to instruct us to enjoy these things for what they are, and yet not to look to them for ultimate satisfaction. He, he instructs us to avoid the insatiable longing for and greedy pursuit of wealth. He instructs us to avoid greed, to avoid the insatiable longing for wealth, but not to avoid wealth and possessions. In and of themselves, these things are not evil. And so he advises us, therefore, to be content with the wealth and possessions we have. For he says, these are what God has given us. And we ought to accept our lot in life. And that's what, that's what contentment is. It's a, it's a resting, joyful, submissive acceptance of God's provision. You see, he's, he's urging us to possess a resting, joyful, submissive acceptance of God's provision. He's urging us to be content. And he even tells us that, that when we are content, instead of overly preoccupied with the pursuit of wealth, we don't fall into the snares that so entangle those who participate in the greedy pursuit of wealth. That's why he says in verse 20, he says, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. He means to say that, that when you're content with your lot in life, when you possess a restful, joyful, submissive acceptance of God's provision, that which troubles those who greedily pursue wealth will not trouble you. 
You won't be overly troubled with the anxieties and the responsibilities. You won't be a participant in the oppression of the poor and the brutality of the rich. The uncertainty and the thought of losing your wealth won't cripple you. And, and, and you won't be overly concerned with the loss of wealth at your death because you're too busy enjoying the life and lot that God has given you. And so the Apostle Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy 6 is fitting then. He tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Those who look to wealth for satisfaction are pierced with many pangs. They're pierced with anxiety and all these increased responsibility with the oppression and brutality. They're, they're, they're pierced with the pain of, of the temporality and the uncertainty of wealth. With contentment, there is great gain. There is joy and delight and peace. How then can we pursue contentment? I'm sure that the vast majority of us desire to be content rather than greedy, but how can we increasingly grow in contentment and die to the love of money and stuff? So before we close, let's, let's look at a few pieces of application. If we regularly implement, it will undoubtedly help us grow in contentment. The first is to meditate on God's sovereignty. I'm not sure how much you notice that verse 18 kind of emphasizes the, the sovereignty of God. Look at what he says again. What I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Notice that it is from the sovereign God. It's the sovereign God from whom your lot in life comes. The cattle on a thousand hills belongs to him and he chooses to distribute it to all of his creatures as he sees fit. And when you realize too that the, that the sovereign God is your heavenly father with whom not a sparrow falls, from the, falls to the ground without his care, Matthew 10, 29, you can rest. You, you, you can rest because you can know for certain that you are of more value than many sparrows to him. He will take care of you. And hasn't he proven that in the cross of Christ? Hasn't he proven that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? He's provided the forgiveness of sins for you. He has provided perfect forgiveness for you. He has provided everything you need for eternal life and the salvation in his Son. You can trust him to take care of you. Remember his sovereignty. Meditate <coughs> on his sovereignty. A second, remember life's brevity. Of course, we, we see our text this morning remind us of this. You're going to live a short life, and then you will die. Do you really want to spend the few short years of your life worried and anxious and striving for what you don't have? Or perhaps you're, you're even worried about and anxious about losing what you do already possess? Would you rather do that? Would you rather have worries and anxieties plague your years? Or would you rather enjoy the life and lot that God has given you? 
Either way, in the end you will die, but the difference is, not, is, is whether or not you lived well. And not only should we consider whether or not we will live well when we consider life's brevity, but we should also consider whether or not we will die well. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Do you want your life to be consumed with the greedy collection of wealth and things? Or would you rather spend your life on that which is eternal, namely Christ and His kingdom? Life is short, death is coming, and with it judgment. And a life of striving and greed is therefore a waste. Consider and be sobered by life's brevity. Next, I would say pray and ask God for contentment. Notice here, preacher seems to be saying that contentment is actually something that God gives. It's a gift from God. You're starting in verse 19. It says, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his, to- in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. You see, the ability to be content and to enjoy what God has given you is a gift from him. And the best way to receive a gift from God is to come to Him with open hands, to come to Him in prayer and ask Him for that which you do not have. If you lack contentment, only ask. This is a prayer that God loves to answer. He loves, it's a gift He loves to give to His children. And lastly, most importantly, be satisfied in Christ. Here's the reality. You are inevitably going to look to something to satisfy and fulfill the longing of your heart. To long and ache for satisfaction is human. You you were not made and designed to sit with a void and vacant heart. Like an empty stomach, an empty heart must be filled with something. And so often what we try to fill it with is wealth and possessions and whatnot. And we've seen the futility of such a pursuit, haven't we? And yet there is one in whom our hearts can be satisfied and satisfied eternally. Wealth is a fickle and uncertain thing, and therefore if we're overly preoccupied with it, it is a thing that increases anxiety and misery. But Christ is not a fickle thing. He is the Lord and sovereign of the universe who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Wealth is something that if we worship it, it consumes us and ruins us. But he is someone who, if we worship him, he doesn't consume us and ruin us. He delights and satisfies us. Wealth is something that will inevitably be taken away from us in death. But not even death can take away Christ from us. For he has turned death into access, into his presence, and promises resurrection life with him forevermore. Wealth is something that the world can so easily take away. But Christ is one who will never be taken away from us. For he said in Hebrews 13, 5, that we ought to be content because he will never leave us or forsake us. C.S. Lewis once wrote that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us 
like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the call here is simple this morning, to put down the mud pies and to enjoy the holiday at sea, to put down the greedy pursuit of money and things, this incessant desire for money and things, and to be satisfied in Christ. And the amazing thing, according to the Apostle Paul, according to the Apostle Paul, he said that being satisfied in Christ, being satisfied with Him, is actually the secret to being content in life. He found this to be the secret to contentment, and he speaks about this in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says there, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Of course, you may hear your favorite basketball player, football player, quote this text, speaking about their sporting abilities. The Apostle Paul is not talking about the ability to shoot a free throw or sack a a QB, sports. No, he's talking about the ability to be content. Friends, if we find ourselves in a state of discontentment in life, we can safely assume that the reason is, is because we're not looking to the all-sufficient Christ for satisfaction. It means we're looking to something else or someone else, be it money and possessions, work or family or anything else other than Him for our satisfaction and our delight. And no matter what it is, it will disappoint. It will be like drinking salt water, expecting it to quench your thirst all the while making you only more thirsty. Christ is the only one who will ever satisfy you. He is the only fountain that never runs dry. He's the only one who will never disappoint. And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, I invite you to come to drink deeply of his mercy and his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. Would you seal this word upon our hearts as we transition now into a time of communion. Would you help us not just to eat bread and to drink the cup, but here also by faith with thanksgiving to drink deeply of the presence of your Son by the power of your Spirit. May this meal to us be the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, that we would drink of him, commune with him, participate in him and be satisfied in him. In his name we pray, amen.